Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Here we are, Ben. Back in lockdown officially. I'm not, I'm not going to complain about lockdown this time because <laughs> I don't want people to think that uh, I'm being a baby about it. Actually, we have some we have some good news, I think, on the pandemic later in the show. So hopefully that will bring everybody's spirits up. That's the goal today, Ben. We're going to bring up spirits. Yeah. Lift them. There's light at the end of the tunnel, just like the Trump There's light at the end of the tunnel. So we got a lot going on today. Uh, we have a secretary of defense nomination. Uh, we have a threat by President Trump to veto money for the troops. We're going to talk about whether or not Elizabeth Warren is secretly running Argentina. I'll explain civilian casualties in Afghanistan, why Mike Pompeo is still an asshole, uh, a COVID update, China sending spies to the Bay Area, aliens, and then the Olympics. So a lot of, a lot of good stuff today. And then our guest today uh, is Asa Traore. Uh, ben, what'd you guys talk about? So Asa's extraordinary. I really urge Worldos to stick around for the interview. She um, she started basically what became the Black Lives Matter movement in France when her brother was killed several years ago, um, and and is an incredibly charismatic, powerful figure who really just tells her story. I mean, the interview is really just the story of what happened to her brother, how she built um, essentially the the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in, in France and how she's also taken that movement global. Um, so everybody should stick around for that. It, it, it's a powerful story, amazing story. I, I do want to give a shout out to Lilia Pino Bluen, uh, who is just an extraordinary interpreter who brought this uh, remarkable interview to us today. So thanks so much for all your work on this, Lilia. You hear that, everybody? You're getting an interpreter on Pod Save the World this week. That is... Something you're not going to get anywhere else, okay? We're breaking new ground here. I, I could have tried it myself in French, and it would have not have gone very far, Tommy. Yeah. Well, then no one would have understood it, so I'm glad you guys got <laughs> yeah, 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 Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> I was so bad at French. I, You know, look, if we're being honest, I think it was a, um, a high school work ethic thing, probably more than anything else, but yeah. I'm also just not good at memorization, and I felt embarrassed every time I had to pronounce things, whereas my brother would like... I don't know what he did when he learned languages. He would just sort of like sort of goof around with it and like kind of make it a performance. And I just could never get in, uh, never get it right. Yeah, I just I didn't have an aptitude for languages. I I did live in Paris for like six months and got good at speaking French, um, but not as good as I should have because I, I didn't like live with a family or anything. And everybody in Paris speaks English so right. they hear your accent and they just bust into English. Um, to this day though, uh, it's, it's yep. interesting. Uh, French comes back. My fluent French comes back. If I've had several drinks, um, and I'm out in a French speaking country, suddenly my aptitude returns. Um, so I don't know what yeah. that's about, but it unlocks some part of my brain, I guess. Uh, you're just a leader of red wine in a Marlboro way from the influent at all times. Yeah, I, I led <laughs> Cody Keenan and I to absinthe one night at three in the morning. Um, with I, I, never, I didn't even know I knew how to say those things, but it worked out. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, I'm excited for that interview. Um, quick housekeeping. So we just dropped uh, our annual ornaments in the Crooked Store, Ben. Uh, funny enough, Hannah, my wife, just actually asked me about the ornaments. Uh, we got two options. We got How the Vote Saved America. And is that ho, ho, hope? Got it. Uh, if you want to receive your fun Crooked Media ornaments by December 24th, 
Be sure to order by the 11th. I've actually seen them. They're really cute. They're really fun. You'll like them. So just go to crooked.com slash store. Get yours. We love puns here. No one loves them more than us. Uh, so let's start with Joe Biden's selection uh, for Secretary of Defense, because that was the big news this week. So he has chosen retired four-star general Lloyd Austin to be his nominee for Secretary of Defense. And if confirmed, Austin would be the first black Secretary of Defense in history, which is a very big deal. Um, but the selection has also generated some controversy because Austin hasn't been retired from the military for seven years, as is required by law. I think he's been out for four. So more on that in a bit. Uh, Austin had a distinguished career in the Army. He served as commander of U.S. Central Command. He was the last commanding general in Iraq. He's a West Point grad. Uh, Politico broke this news, and they noted that Austin has a lot of experience in logistics management, which will be really important for the COVID vaccine distribution process. Uh, and he also got close to Biden back in 2011 because Biden at the time was running Iraq policy from the White House, especially trying to get all the troops home. Austin was the commanding general. They got to know each other well. Biden was flying to Iraq all the time. So Ben, like pros for Austin, right? He's widely respected. He has combat experience. He has experience in Iraq. He has experience leading efforts against ISIS. He's got a relationship with Biden. He would be this historic first to hold a job that is way too white at the top, just way too white and at the top. Um, downsides for Austin are this waiver issue that I mentioned earlier and the concern about the balance between civilian authority versus military authority. In fact, this concern is so serious that Senator Jack Reed, who is a senior Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, says he will not support a waiver for any future nominee for defense secretary. So it seems like the, the nomination could be in a little bit of trouble and there's some, some criticism and blowback. Uh, Austin has also faced some criticism for being on the board of Raytheon, which is a defense contractor. So uh, Ben, you know, there are probably some people listening to us talk about this who are like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, why, why is recent military service a negative in this job? That makes no sense. It seems like that'd be the exact thing you want from a secretary of defense. Uh, a, an exception was made recently uh, for this waiver rule for General Mattis, who is Trump's first Secretary of Defense, he was confirmed overwhelmingly. Can you like step back and kind of help people understand the controversy here and the concern about preserving civilian control of the military? Yeah, I mean, I, I um, first of all, I think Lloyd Austin is an extraordinary guy. Um, there are a few generals that were in the Situation Room more, you know, because of Iraq, because of CENTCOM and the counter-ISIS mission than him, just a man of tremendous integrity. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to, to lay that down because I do have a couple of concerns. Um, yeah. In terms of civilian control, um, I, I think it comes from a couple of dynamics. Uh, I mean, the first is that the U.S. military is just an incredibly powerful institution, the uniformed military, that has its own interests. Um, and I think there's always been a concern that if you don't have a civilian in that position, that the momentum of the military's own interest in resources or in certain policies could kind of overtake, um, you know, what should be judgments that are made weighing a variety of different priorities. I'll give you an example so this becomes more real to people. The Afghan surge, which we've talked about a lot on this show, you know, General McChrystal becomes the field general in Afghanistan. He decides that he needs 40,000 additional U.S. troops. 
the the U.S. military, you will, you'll recall, Tommy, kind of fell in line around the general, you know. Uh, so whether it was Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, or Dave Petraeus, the uh, head of uh, Central Command at that time, who was uh, above uh, McChrystal in the chain of command, uniformly just took the same position, you know. And uh, I, I think that, that this is the danger, right? That, that that the military, when they're in wars, they want more resources for understandable reasons, right? They they want to do the job that's been put in front of them. The, the question is. When you're dealing with like a seven or eight hundred billion dollar budget, for instance, um, do you have a secretary of defense who can look at that from a civilian perspective and say, maybe we don't need those additional weapon systems or, or maybe I need to listen to the president who's telling me that, you know, we've got an economic crisis in this country, so we have to make some cuts in the defense budget. And so I yep. think on issues like are there more resources put into counterterrorism or, or, or wars? Um, or are we going to be able to cut the defense budget? Uh, you know, those are just two examples of circumstances where somebody who's spent their whole life in uniform might be much more likely to, to kind of represent the views of the uniform military rather than asserting the kind of civilian control of the military that allows you to make trade-offs, that allows you to weigh you know, resource requests in one area against other national priorities. Um, and that just, frankly, just has a healthy dynamic in democracies. You don't want militaries to be in positions of political influence. You want them to be you know, carrying out their professional responsibilities. Yeah. It's also probably pretty challenging. You know, if, if you're a four-star general, you are the best of the best of the best of the best, right? And that, that is an elite club. And I imagine you spend 40 years in the military with a bunch of four-stars, you become pretty close. So to your point, I mean, having to push back on them on yeah. behalf of the White House to implement policy, I think, becomes even harder. And that's probably why this would only be the third time that a president has requested or received a waiver. The first was George Marshall in 1950, and then General Mattis in the in the you know, beginning of Trump's term in 2016. Unfortunately, we're talking about this question of sort of civilian control of the military, right? And we're not having a conversation about how progressive this choice is, right? Like, I have no idea what Lloyd Austin's politics are, but I suspect, like you said, he's not going to be a person who's going to come to the building and push for budget cuts and say, yeah. like, $741 billion NDAA is a lot of money. You know, but, like, I guess the question is, who would be that more progressive alternative? Because I don't know that Michelle Flournoy is that person either, right? I mean, she supported, you know, the Iraq surge. Like, she's someone who's got unbelievable experience. She's a brilliant thinker. She has been recommended by, you know, almost everybody that is 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 steeped in these policies. But again, it's sort of like, to your point, Ben, like not someone that's going to, I don't know, shake up the building, really. Well, yeah, but I'll say this, because if my first concern with the, the selection is the civilian control, the military point. The second is... This will be the third consecutive time that a Democrat has won a presidential election and then not chosen a Democrat to be their secretary of defense. And yep. I, I look, I don't know, maybe Lloyd Austin, I'm not suggesting he's a Republican. I think, understandably, he's probably of no political party affiliation because he spent his career in military. And that's right. So it's not a yep. criticism of Lloyd Austin. The point is, Barack Obama wins in 2008 and names Bob Gates. Barack Obama wins in 2012, names Chuck Hagel. Joe Biden wins in 2020 and chooses Lloyd Austin. It just feels like, why are we afraid to pick a Democrat? You know, it's like, yeah, there's a right. lot of Democrats in this country. And and so, yeah, Michelle, you know, uh, I'm sure there, there are important progressive arguments about you know, where Michelle's been on certain policy issues or the budget. But we do know that she's been a Democrat and she's been, yeah, yeah. you know, she understands the Democratic Party and she understands 
the Democratic Democratic concerns in Congress. So so it, not that she's the ideal alternative, but rather that I would like to see a civilian and a Democrat serve a Democratic president at some point. Um, and because and it, it, it reinforces kind of the Republican narrative that Democrats aren't ready or somehow serious about national defense in the military. If we kind of confirm that view by picking a general or by picking a Republican like Gates or a Republican like Hegel, as if we have to be viewing this position from a defensive crouch, you know, um, right. that's what what bothers me the most about this pick again, which has nothing to do with Lloyd Austin. Like he could be the greatest general in the world. But the reality is, you know, the Republicans appoint people that are going to carry out their national security priorities for for better, good, bad or ugly. Um I'd like to see the Democrats pick somebody from our own bench, really, for the for these yeah, types of yeah. positions. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm pl- kind of playing devil's advocate here. Like, I, I, yeah. I, I'm sure Lloyd Austin and Michelle Flournoy would be exceptionally good at the job. I'm just sort of struck by how narrow the sort of oh, boundaries yeah. of the conversation are going in. That's right. No, no, that's a good point, Tommy. Which is like, you know, you, you don't see progressives on these lists ever. You know, so yeah. so it, it is something to to think about in terms of how you're developing your bench. Whereas, you know, Trump sends Mike Pompeo to the State Department, right, from the CIA, who is like a military first, kill everything, diplomacy later kind of guy and, you know, not a great pick. Um, Ben, random story that came to mind, I was thinking about uh, Jim Jeffrey and Lloyd Austin, who are like kind of like the diplomat and the senior military leader uh, tag teaming the, the Iraq drawdown process. Were you in that deputies committee meeting when Dennis was leading it? And he had, you know, he had asked Jim Jeffrey, the ambassador, about some sort of document. And Jeffrey was like, oh, we'll send that over to you when it's ready. And Dennis said, oh, no, no, we have it here, actually. Like so-and-so from your team sent it over to us. So we, you know, thank you for that. And he and, and Jeffrey in, in Baghdad forgot to mute his mic. And he was like, <laughs> get me that motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when, yeah, went yeah. berserk. And he didn't know he wasn't muted. And we're all sitting there in the situation room. Like everyone is dying laughing. And like, yeah. just like, uh, Jim, 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 yeah. your mic. Your mic. <laughs> yeah. Jim Jeffrey didn't love the Obama White House either. So that kind of came out too. Um, I, I'll tell you, Lloyd Austin, I mean, it, it, the that guy is super intense. I mean, he's like six foot six and like yes. just a big guy with like a deep baritone voice. And it was really intense to be in the counter-ISIL meetings with him because he would refer to ISIS uh, as the singular he, uh, as the enemy. So he'd be describing like, huh. you know, you know, he'd be like, so uh, the enemy you see, he's over here and and we're going to hit him here. And And it was always like, the toughest thing imaginable, <laughs> like this general just describing, like you know, in this kind of first-person way, uh, how he was going to take out ISIS. And I, I will say, like he was the guy who, who, who uh, put together, you know, from the military perspective, this you know coalition of dozens of countries that ultimately did take out ISIS. I will say, it should be looked at, right? The failure of that probably ill-considered to begin with, train and equip program of the uh, Syrian opposition Syria, um, yeah. uh, happened uh, under Austin's command. Again, that the failure may have very well been with the civilians who uh, provided that mission, but that's something that may get scrutiny. And, and there was some question that I hope gets surfaced here about uh, civilian casualty reporting from CENTCOM um, at the time Austin was there. Uh, again, not suggesting that that he was personally responsible for this, but I think it's important that issues like transparency around civilian casualties get 
an airing in uh, a confirmation process. Um, you know, obviously they've not featured at all in the last four years with with Trump. Um, but but I I think having come out of a period with McMaster and Kelly and Mattis, right. it would have been even more important to kind of you know send a message about civilian control. But I mean, look, Joe Biden clearly is prioritizing people that he is personally very comfortable with, and, and I can attest firsthand he he thinks the world of Lloyd Austin and 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 that's the kind of team he wants, and and that's you know he's entitled to his his team, and they are all high quality people. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, one thing that will be very relevant to, to whoever gets this job, whether it's Flournoy or Austin or anybody else, is uh, the annual National Defense Authorization Act. So that is a literally $741 billion bill this year that funds military programs, weapon systems, pay raises, other compensation for uh, service members. Trump has repeatedly tweeted various veto threats around this bill. Uh, including if it doesn't include a repeal of Section 230, which is a federal law that gives social media companies like Twitter and Facebook liability protections. Basically, if I tweet something terrible, Twitter can't be sued, but I can. That's the gist of it. Um, There is a reasonable debate that should be had about liability protections and social media platforms and et cetera. But uh, what Trump is doing here is saying that he will cut off funding to the U.S. military because Twitter won't let him spread lies about the election without fact checks, which is obviously a petulant, ridiculous thing to do. So previously, he threatened to veto this bill because of a provision from Elizabeth Warren that would change the names of 10 military bases that are currently named after Confederate generals, because maybe we should stop honoring Confederates. Um, This morning, Trump said another tweet that also added, quote, Uh, the bill must allow for 5G and troop productions in foreign lands. Now, of course, he spelled troop, T-R-O-U-P-E, the way you would a dance (laughs) or comedy troop. (laughs) Um, I guess what he's referencing are parts of the the current bill that limits his ability to reduce the number of troops in Germany and South Korea. Uh, And then there's something I don't really understand about GPS and 5G, but whatever. So, Ben, I mean, I just, the politics of this are just unimaginably stupid. I mean, cutting off funds for the U.S. military because Twitter is mean to you. That's just not a great message. You can't ever convince me that it is. The House passed the NDAA uh, anyway today, Tuesday. Over the summer, versions of the bill had passed with veto-proof majorities. The question now is whether Republicans are going to fall in line one last time or just ignore him. Uh, There's rumblings out of the Freedom Caucus that they will support a Trump veto. What do you make of this of this madness, uh, this 11th hour madness and like care to make a prediction about what happens here? Well, it's completely insane reason to be vetoing the National Defense Authorization Act. You, you know, first of all, even if, even if you have concerns about Section 230, right, um, and you want greater tech regulation, like the, the NDAA is not like the vehicle <laughs> through which Strange I'd be choice, yeah. addressing that, like let the new Congress take that up, you know. Um, and, and you're right about the politics. Like if a Democrat was you know, Obama, every time the NDA came up, they would always have restrictions in in the NDA, basically preventing him from closing Gitmo, right? So the the laws that said you couldn't transfer anybody out of Gitmo into the US, even yep. to a prison here. And we would always kind of consider vetoing it. And the kind of collective wisdom of Democrats in Congress and the media was it's political suicide and insanity to possibly veto an NDAA. You'll never recover from it, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's clearly a double standard here. And I was, yeah, the Freedom Caucus seems to indicate that they're going to have his back. So as usual, Trump, not surprising that he's uh, acting like a toddler on the way out uh, who doesn't care about, you know, the 
defense of the United States. It's just a shock that why, why are Republicans backing up a lame duck president on a, a bunch of insane pet projects of his? You know, yeah. um, I would assume that this veto will be over, you know, overturned. But if enough, you know, House Republicans uh, are still, you know, paying homage to dear leader, this could all get punted to next year, in which case, you know, they'll just pass an NDA very quickly, I think, through uh, through the next Congress under Joe Biden. Just an absurd uh, number of things that are being held hostage to this man's ego. It is just infuriating. Um, Okay, so Argentina. So this is the reason I mentioned Elizabeth Warren. So Argentina passed a new tax on its wealthiest citizens to pay for COVID relief measures. So this is a tax on people worth more than $2.5 million, which the BBC estimated would impact about 12,000 people in the country. Uh, And so it's a rate of up to 3.5% on wealth in Argentina and 5.25% on wealth outside of Argentina. They are hoping to raise about $3.7 billion, so about like a 50th of a Bezos, uh, and use that money to pay for actual medical supplies, as well as relief for businesses and people. And then uh, I think like a fifth of it is going to go towards developing uh, a domestic natural gas sector, which is kind of random, but who knows. (laughs) So anyway, this seems like a good idea. We should do this. (laughs) How about a wealth tax? Great idea. You know, I'd love to see Elizabeth Warren's proposals globalized. Uh, Yeah, no, this is, and look, I, I will say Argentina, like a lot of Latin American countries, struggles with massive economic inequality. I mean, Mm -hmm. destabilizing uh, inequality. And that's fueled protests next door to Argentina and Chile. Um, And now we've got a progressive president in Argentina doing, I think, what is a very common sense thing uh, and raising badly needed resources in the middle of COVID and economic crisis through wealth tax. The thing I'd watch, Tommy, is whether this becomes contagious in, in a good way, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. where uh, government after government starts to see that this is uh, you know an equitable way uh, to try to address public needs. It would be a good thing. So you mentioned the issue of civilian casualties in CENTCOM earlier. So uh, I wanted to raise that issue about Af- Afghanistan because uh, Brown University has a uh, cost of war project, and they just recently released it. And they found that in 2019, U.S. airstrikes killed more civilians in Afghanistan than any other year since 2002, since the beginning of the war. There was a 330% increase from 2016 to 2019. So 2016 was the last full year Obama was in charge. So 330% increase from the Obama years to the most recent uh, Trump year. Uh, The increase is directly attributable to a decision made in 2017 by the Trump team to loosen the rules of engagement for airstrikes. So for listeners unfamiliar with that term, rules of engagement are internal rules for the military that govern like when you can use force. It can range from when an individual soldier is allowed to fire his or her weapon to when a pilot is allowed to drop bombs on a target. And so in 2017, for example, the Pentagon started letting pilots hit targets like a narcotics factory where there wasn't direct fighting happening at the moment, but suddenly it was deemed a military target. This report also points out that, you know, we think fewer troops on the ground should lead to fewer deaths from Afghans. In fact, that's not the case. So when you have fewer troops on the ground, the military has been trying to do more damage from the air and more bombs were dropped in 2018 and 2019 than at the height of the U.S. troop presence in 2011. Uh, The report also points out, you know, that military commanders have long known that civilian casualties are damaging to the overall war effort. The report quotes General McChrystal, who you mentioned earlier, who was the ISAF commander, uh, expressing outrage at one incident and saying, quote, 
we are going to lose this fucking war if we don't stop killing civilians. So it's crystal clear to him. So, you know, Ben, credit to Brown for putting this together. There's less reporting on the ground there. You know, the lower the U.S. troop levels get, the less attention, I think, gets paid to the war itself. There's less media uh, who are able to operate without the protection of U.S. troops. So you know, I think reports like this are critical un- to understanding how bad the reality is on the ground for the Afghan people. And, you know, unfortunately, they also get into the fact that as we are transitioning to training the Afghan Air Force to bomb targets, they too are starting to uh, uh, hit civilian targets uh, at a, a really alarming rate. So not great. Yeah. And it's kind of depressing that in the Trump years, you know, there was no expectation that they would care about civilian casualties. So what used to be an issue, they got kind of scrutiny from the media and um, they didn't bother asking, right? I mean, he, it, I mean, he ran on it too, right? I mean, he said he's going to bomb the shit out of him. Yeah. Ted Cruz, bomb into the Stone Age. It's like, it's just disgusting that that's a talking point that gets you political points. But No, you know. th- that's right. And I think we in this country need to look in the mirror and think, well, like, why is it not a bigger issue that we are killing civilians at this rate? When we yeah. knew that that's exactly what was going to happen. When he said he was going to loosen the rules of engagement, you know, well, that was clearly going to lead to civilian casualties. This is a man who bragged about dropping the quote unquote mother of all bombs, the largest yeah. like, conventional bomb ever dropped on a country on Afghanistan, right at the beginning of this. as if like just dropping a big bomb was some achievement, you know? And and by the way, if you watch Fox, it was an achievement for years. They would cite it as like part of his legacy. And at the convention, the Republican convention, you had speakers, including his grifting sons, like talking about this, like it was a good thing. I mean, you want to know why America is not going to win these post 9-11 wars? Like in part because- we didn't show enough regard for the lives of the people in the countries where we'd gone to war. I mean, that that's pretty straightforward. Um, and, and, and I think this does throw up also a huge cautionary note about, you know, the risks of, of shifting everything to air power. And, and this is why even in the counter-ISIS mission where Obama got accused of, quote unquote, micromanaging the military because he put a lot of these restrictions in terms of what you could do from the air, it was always more effective to try to work with, like, say, the Kurds uh, who are actually fighting ISIS on the ground. Um, because, again, you're not just dropping, you know, no matter how precision guided the weapons are, like if you're dropping them from tens of thousands of feet, um, you know, mistakes are, are more likely to happen. And th- these aren't just right. like mistakes. These are like tragic losses of, of innocent life. Yeah. And look, the, the there were civilian casualties under Obama. Um, but you're right. I mean, a 330 percent increase because yeah. of these rule changes is it's a huge deal. It shows it's you why we deal. have the rules in the first place. I mean, they ma- yeah. they do matter. I mean, they, they, they really make a difference in terms of, of of what circumstances you're authorizing the use of, of lethal force. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR 
by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Okay, so let's uh, transition to uh, uh, Mike Pompeo because I couldn't be more excited for him to be the former Secretary of State, but we should talk about the ways he is sort of embarrassing himself or disgracing the office uh, on the way out the door. So first, Ben, there are concerns about irregularities in the recent Venezuelan legislative elections. Uh, The opposition boycotted these elections. They were criticized by the EU, the elections, the way they were run were, uh, among others. But Pompeo tweeted that the uh, elections were, quote, an attempt to steal Venezuela's democratic future and, quote, an electoral sham. And that is just humiliating for him and for the United States as he is running around supporting Trump's coup attempt, including my item number two. Pompeo announced he is going to give a speech in Georgia. No, not Tbilisi. He's going to Atlanta. He's going to Georgia Tech a month before the runoff election that couldn't be more partisan and more politicized. And then remember a while back when we were talking about Pompeo's, uh, you know, the lavish like Madison dinners at the State Department for for major donors and leaders, uh, an organization called Crew. They track like government corruption. Basically, they obtain documents that show that these dinners cost taxpayers at least $40,000, probably a lot more. So, you know, I, I know that our punishment, Ben, is going to be watching like guys like Pompeo, like bang around in U.S. politics for the next few years as he plots a, a run for president. But, um, you know, I think we need to make sure we're calling out his bullshit on the way out the door because it's just it's it's a joke. He's a joke. He's a complete and utter joke who's debased the position of secretary of state, eviscerated our credibility to ever comment on other countries' elections. You know, I mean, until we do some serious homework uh, here in the United States, I, I do want to just raise one thing, Tommy, which is like, oh, he's going to Georgia. Like, fine. What? Is he the, the the closer here? Like like the the, the Republicans are going to lose these two Senate seats, yeah. but then Mike Pompeo, who's achieved nothing as Secretary of State, is going to come into Georgia Tech and somehow he's like the cavalry is going to deliver this win. This guy's talking about running for president. Who the fuck is going to vote for this guy for president? Like he's forty thousand dollars on the Madison dinners. He'd be lucky if he walked out of those with forty votes from the people who attended those dinners. <laughs> so I don't even know why he's even done the service of being treated like some guy with so, like some he, if. You seen Mike Pompeo speak? Have you listened to him? Does that sound he's not like, a compelling like, guy? Donald Trump is compelling. Like I, 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 I hate it, but he's like a charismatic guy. So like yeah. I also don't know why we go through this charade. Like he's this this guy who needs to be taken seriously. What? Why? Like what has he yeah. achieved? What has he achieved in he's public a, life? Nothing. He's, he's a, achieved he's nothing. A bully. Yeah. I mean, and the good news is. Trump running again is going to make me completely miserable because I'm just sick of hearing him and I'm sick of him being like the global narrator for U.S. events. But watching him freeze and infuriate all these clowns who have been looking in the mirror for four years and thinking they're the next president is going to be a a tiny, tiny consolation press. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo, I don't know, Tommy. We we had to keep coming back to it a couple of times. But I mean, this guy, like of of all the Trump lackeys uh, who are not related to him, like he's he's that that got to be at the top of the list. He's right up to the top. Okay, so here's an issue he should be working on, which is COVID. So good news. Uh, The UK is the first nation in the world to begin vaccinating its citizens. So a 90-year-old woman named Margaret Keenan was the first person in the country to get the Pfizer vaccine. A man named William Shakespeare was the second. (laughs) No one tell the New York Times we're going to get another like King Lear comparison story. (laughs) But um, so vaccinating everyone in the UK is obviously going to take a while, uh, especially because, you know, that version of the vaccine requires two doses. But 
light at the end of the tunnel. Good news. So that's a good news story. So now I'm going to piss you off. Uh, we also learned this week that over the summer, Pfizer offered to sell the U.S. more than the original 100 million doses of the vaccine, and the Trump administration turned them down. So that could slow down our vaccination timeline here in the U.S. over the long term and make me put my head through a wall in the short term. So that's very annoying. So let's end with some interesting context, because the most interesting thing I've read about COVID in a long time was a story by David Wallace Wells in New York Magazine, who's just a fantastic writer. He talks about how the Moderna vaccine, which is basically 95% effective, had been designed by January 13th, 2020. So this thing was like done and in a lab. And the National Institute of Health was starting the process of these phase one trials right around the time when the first death occurred. So we've had this vaccine like in our hands for months. And you know, I'm not saying like we should have just given it then, like obviously not, but other countries have moved faster. So China started administering its vaccine in June. Russia approved a vaccine in August. Not the countries I would normally turn to for safety standards, which is notable. So the, the piece asked whether we should speed up this sort of clinical trial process and potentially take a little more risk to get vaccines to market faster if that could have saved like 10, 20, 100,000 lives. And What's notable is this has happened with treatments. The FDA allowed emergency use of authorization for several treatments, including hydroxychloroquine, which one could argue makes a strong case against speeding up these processes. But it does talk, it speaks to the inconsistency. So for vaccines, that phase three trial is there to measure efficacy and not safety. So you could make an argument for skipping that part of the process. But you know, this piece is great because it also talks about how in the future, we might be able to preemptively prepare vaccines for future pandemics in the same way that scientists anticipate the flu strain every year. So it's just worth reading the whole thing. It gets at a broader discussion that we have a lot on this show about how to manage risk with public policy and how to spend money in service of that risk and those policy choices. Because a vaccine scientist at Mount Sinai estimated that you could prepare vaccines for between 50 to 100 viruses and like prepare us for the next round of pandemics for the price of the entire F-35 jet program. So a lot there, Ben. Yeah. Uh, but I guess my question to you is just how are you feeling about the state of the COVID world these days and like, you know, how we've handled it versus the other countries? Well, I mean, I was enraged at the news. I mean, like the, Trump literally, you know, his slogan is America first, <laughs> you know, drawing on his kind of fascist uh, models from the past. And, and then this guy like sells out Americans by not trying to acquire as much of this vaccine as possible. Uh, for their quote unquote operation warp speed like they they clearly yep. they basically made it demonstrably slower and worse uh, in terms of the dissemination of the vaccine to come by not taking this step at the same time you mentioned hy hydroxy like there was no scientific impulse to test that and to to put more resources behind it that was done to kind of cover up Trump's insanity at press briefings and a narrative he wanted on Fox News right so uh, you know it reinforces Government matters. Competent government would have saved a ton of lives in a whole host of ways from masking to guidelines, but also now we learn vaccines. I think the bigger point here going forward is, look, this is a competence question. The, the, the national and global dissemination of these vaccines is going to be a massive effort uh, over the course of the next year, including for the next administration. I feel so much better with just competent professionals managing this because these are problems to be solved. The, the, these aren't ideological disputes. It's like, how do we you know, move something from X to Y to Z. I think going forward, though, 
global health security was something that you know we were beginning to become much more invested in the Obama years and that pandemic preparedness office that got a lot of attention, that directorate at the White House that focused on pandemic preparedness, was meant to be a part of a global system of pandemic preparedness that had U.S. offices in other countries, but also that coordinated with other countries to learn lessons from past pandemics, to be doing research, to be you know working together on potential vaccines. And so, yes, I do think that coming out of COVID, we should never go through this again as a global community. We should have much, much more resources devoted to early warning, to, to stopping uh, the spread of outbreaks at their source, and yes, to surging resources behind vaccines and getting them to the people faster. How is this not worth the investment of, say, just the single arms sale that we'll talk about that's being made yeah, to the UAE? If you put you know, $20 billion into global pandemic preparedness, you can save hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives if this ever happens again and save trillions of dollars of economic damage. It is a no-brainer in terms of, of, of putting resources into this. Yeah, and it just seems like something where you could so easily share the burden. I mean, every yeah. country in the world could put in some chunk of money, try to prepare all these vaccines, and just speed up the dissemination. It seems like the most obvious thing we could possibly do. And look, it's all enabled, I think, by this sort of new mRNA type of vaccine that's just somehow faster. I don't get it. And look, we have this legacy of you know, there was a, a a version of the polio vaccine that I think got one in a thousand people sick. And, you know, the, the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. So they wanted to make sure they weren't harming people here. But, you know, there's got to be a cost benefit analysis that, I don't know, just maybe thinks about this stuff in a new way, because we're going to hit like 400,000 people dead. And we've had the formula for this vaccine since January. There is, and there's no question, you made an important point. I cannot think of a single issue on which international cooperation should be easier. Because Every single country has an interest in there not being an outbreak, even in other countries, right? Because obviously, even if you get your stuff together in your own country, you know, it can yeah. spread as long as it's spreading somewhere else. So this is something where the US and China and Europe and India and other countries that don't agree on a lot of things should all feel comfortable putting resources into the same bucket to make sure that the yeah. world can deal with this better. If only there was an organization that dealt with world health <laughs> that we were a part of. It was called an organization. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a good place to do it. Um, okay, so a couple more things. So uh, Axios had an interesting piece today that is worth reading in full about a Chinese spy who spent about four years in the U.S. trying to get close with various U.S. political leaders. Uh, her primary targets were in California and the Bay Area, including Congressman Eric Swalwell, who was tapped to serve on the House Permanent Select Intelligence Committee back in 2015. So like he would have had at some point access to real information. I think she left in 2015 and there's there's no evidence that he ever you know said anything untoward or did anything untoward, but it was just, you know, cheap, cheap picked a target that later went into a position of serious influence, which is notable. Um, you know, but this is sort of like a long-term effort to build these ties through fundraising for politicians, networking, even romantic relationships with unnamed Midwestern mayors are mentioned in the piece. Um, and so again, in Swalwell's case, he was warned about her, I think, by the FBI in 2015. He immediately cut ties. He, you know, no allegation of any wrongdoing. But, you know, Ben, it reminded me of the, the Russian illegals who spent decades in the U.S. trying to build relationships like this until they were finally exposed and uh, given the boot from the U.S. in 2010. They later became the genesis of the show, The Americans. So we thank them for that. Uh, in this case, this Chinese agent, uh, Miss Fang, just suddenly departed in 2015. So I don't know if they got a tip somehow. Um, 
you know, it's funny. You usually think about spying and intrigue like this being a Washington thing. But the targets, again, were in San Francisco. When I lived in San Francisco, I remember noticing lots of consulates, lots of cars with diplomatic plates driving around. On top of that, there's a lot of political leaders. There's a lot of good technology to steal. So, Ben, the Axios takeaway was China is more aggressive. They're more emboldened with their spying. I'm no counterintelligence yeah. expert, but yeah. I, I had always just assumed that China and Russia had the pedal to the metal. But I don't know. What did you make of this piece? Well, first of all, I'm glad you ended where you did because I'm not a counterintelligence specialist either. What I'm about to say, I don't want to suggest is informed by you know, classified information I learned in government. But my my instinct was that this happens all the time from, from lots of different countries, by the way. Obviously, China and Russia, but I think lots of countries have people who report back, you know, uh, about business developments in other countries, obviously about politics, obviously about national security. So I think people should recognize that this kind of, you know, human espionage uh, is, is still part of the landscape. The thing that concerns me, Tommy, is that there's been a movement under Trump to kind of kick out all Chinese foreign students um, who are studying in this country. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of Chinese students here. Uh, and yes, there have been reports that, that the Chinese you know, intelligence services have used students on occasion like this. It would be an enormous mistake to just toss out all Chinese students because there are some spies that got through. Uh, the way to have a, a more airtight counterintelligence system is to just be good at uncovering who's an intelligence asset. And I can tell you, if you kick out all the Chinese students, the Chinese will find other ways to have travelers come here. Uh, you just have to be good at, at trying to un- uncover these things. You probably can't stop them all. So I do hope that the momentum of this story, which has a kind of DC salacious feel to it because it's a Chinese spy and a young woman, like I hope that that doesn't lead to more punitive measures against uh, international students. Yeah. I mean, the line between diplomat and spy is not fully spelled out here. Obviously, a sexual relationship is another level. I mean, if she is it, diplomats build relationships with political leaders to get information to report back. It's called yeah. a cable. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I guess like the, the line for an intel person is you're undeclared in the country or also maybe you like slip somebody a thumb drive and try to spy yeah. on their comms or something. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, to your point, the Chinese are doing this all the time. The Russians, the Israelis, oh, a guess lot of what? people spying we're, on a lot of people. We're doing it. I mean, well, I mean, again, oh, I'm so, not revealing any, you know, like, no. anything secret here. But I mean, you think the United States doesn't like want to know what's happening in other countries? Of course we do. Speaking of uh, knowing what's happening in uh, other places, we have to talk about aliens because uh, the former head of Israel's defense ministry, Space Directorate, says that aliens exist, that the U.S. has made contact with them. But they asked the aliens asked us to not go public with this news yet because the world isn't ready. Uh, He made these uh, claims in an interview with uh, Yediot Aronot, which is a major (laughs) Israeli newspaper. Uh, The general said the aliens are just as curious about us as we are about them. Uh, that the U.S. and the aliens have a joint underground base on Mars. Uh, maybe the least believable part of the story is the claim that Trump was on the verge of revealing all this news, but didn't because they asked him not to prevent mass hysteria. I kind of think he's like a, a mass hysteria fan if it's politically advantageous. So, again, for our listeners, uh, neither of us got briefed mm-hmm. on any alien intel or if we did, we would lie to you about it. But it's fascinating how stories like this pop up all the time <laughs> from seemingly very credible sources. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's fucking Pentagon videos of UFOs flying yeah. around. This dude ran Israel's defense ministry <laughs> yeah. for space. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know if aliens exist, it's all just hiding in plain sight. And I don't know what to make of it anymore. 
I well, Harry Reid too. Have you ever heard Harry? Reed? Yeah, Harry Reid. He insists that they're UFOs. Uh, funded for years. I mean, look uh, to the longtime worldos, right? Who who stuck with us? You'll recall that we were very supportive of the march on Area Fifty One. Um, oh, totally. I don't know what <laughs> happened to that. I don't know why that got shut down. I know there are risks involved. I know it's hot out there, but come on. I mean, not in COVID. Everybody should be locked down. But sure. I mean, you people need to go check out what's happening here. Um, actually, uh, marches on Area 51 were actually exempted by the L.A. County rules. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a very that's a very inside L.A. being pissed about COVID restrictions. I, I, I will say, though, that the Mars uh, underground base uh, is when you start to think that maybe this guy who was once very uh, on top of things for Israel, like that a screw had popped loose. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to envision the underground base on Mars that, that the U.S. has been furtively running somehow. Right. So, yeah. How would we get there? How would we, how would we get there with no one seeing us getting there? So I thought about this too. So the base would have had to have been built by the aliens and we'd have to oh, hitch a ride, I okay, guess. Okay, that's fair. That's so, my yeah. only explanation. So we hitch a ride on the UFO. Wait, you just, no, that, that's, so we hitch a ride on the UFO. So it's so fast. And yeah. It's not picked up by telescopes and stuff. You just stick your thumb out okay. and you look, look friendly. It. Yeah, yeah. They they haven't had the serial killers issues that yeah, we've had no, back that's here. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. You know. Anyway, uh, last story. Uh, so Ben, your dream of winning Olympic gold has been revived. So the International Olympic Committee just announced that breakdancing, skateboarding, climbing, and surfing will make their debut at the Tokyo Games. So sadly, though, uh, ocean rowing and parkour were rejected. But uh, please pick your sport. Let us know how we can support you. Maybe set up a GoFundMe. We'll start your training uh, regimen. But you just got to let us know today, like, which direction you're going. So I've got, what, skateboarding, surfing? Breakdancing, break climbing, dance. and surfing. Now, you are in Venice, so you got some ocean. Uh, yeah, I don't know how the break is, though. I didn't tell you. I mean, you, you've been to weddings with me. I mean, I think it's a no-brainer, breakdancing. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I could get to work. I mean, the only risk there, I, I would say that this would be a sure thing. Uh, except for my hamstrings. Um, because basically what I can see here is that like, I'm going to tear muscle trying to prepare for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Olympic team and breakdancing. You don't want so to that might suggest yeah. That might suggest climbing. I don't know. Climbing seems so hard. Is ranting, a, um... Can ranting become an Olympic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Okay. Well, well, you know what? We'll go back to them. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you and I know how this Olympic thing works from uh, our experience with Obama trying to get the games. Basically, what happens is every country goes, oh they make a big presentation, they do it all in good faith, trying to get the games to their city, and then a bunch of autocrats hand bags of cash to the uh, folks in charge. Yeah. So, And we, that's why we struck out. I did get to represent the United States uh, and as the official delegation to the closing ceremonies in 2012 in London, which was one of the coolest things I did in government. And it was me, Susan Rice and Reggie Love um, and Michelle Kwan, um, you know, the figure skater, uh, yeah. wonderful woman. And Reggie disappeared for very long times, um, usually, you know, between the end of the day and the next morning. Uh, and I think he did really well at some like casino or something. <laughs> so there we were like uh, representing the United States and Reggie always turned up for his duties. Right. But um, I think he also made made a little money on the side. Uh, who knew about London casinos? Not me. I've been reading Obama's book and uh, his like early campaign Reggie stories are the best. Yeah. Like Obama's like <laughs> the most miserable he's ever been on his life. He's like sitting on a plane with Robert Gibbs. And Gibbs and like, are you having any fun on this campaign trail? Obama's like, no, 
Reggie turned around. He goes, if it's any consolation, I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is true. Which is true. Which is true. It is the funniest thing in the world to say the next president <laughs> of the United States. But uh, that's why everybody loves him. He's like just a beloved human being. Yes. All right. That's all I got for the news section. Uh, when we come back, we'll have Ben's interview with Asa Traore about France and Black Lives Matter. So stick around for that. Uh, you will not want to miss it. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, Asa Traoré, uh, who is a racial justice activist and the founder of the Truth for Adama Advocacy Group in France. Um, and we're very excited to be able to have her in doing this uh, through interpretation. So thank you, Asa, for, for joining us. Merci uh, également. Merci à vous de... Thank you for having me and for taking this fight beyond uh, the French borders across the Atlantic so that my brother's name can resonate uh, to defend all the victims uh, of uh, uh, police brutality uh, outside of France. Well, why don't we start with your your brother? Um, Americans obviously know all too well the names of people like Michael Brown and and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, but they may not know your brother's story. Um, and, and so, uh, why don't you just begin by telling us um, what happened to your brother uh, in 2016, um, so that so that we get to know him a little bit, and then we can talk about your activism. Mon frère, malheureusement. Um... My brother died on the day of his 24th birthday. And what happened to him is exactly what happened to George Floyd. That image of um, George Floyd's death that we all have in our hearts is exactly uh, what happened to my brother. Uh, They died screaming the same words, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. That image that has shocked and horrified the entire world uh, that we learned through George Floyd is exactly the same that happened to Adama Traoré. As I mentioned, my brother died um, on the day of his 24th birthday, um, that 19th of July, 2016. That day, uh, the town hall had called to let him know that his ID was ready to be picked up. 
That day, he just wanted to go out for a bike ride. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and he just wanted to enjoy his bike ride. But he didn't have uh, time to do that. And it's important for the world to know that here in France, um, an ID is um, just the prolonging for um, black people of what um, slavery was. Um, he didn't have on him his... Um, protective vest, uh, which is what the idea would have been. And because of that, uh, he um, was just pinned to the ground and uh, um, he was subject to a chokehold. That day, uh, as he was uh, riding his bike, um, he saw that the police was doing um, an ID check and he was just going to uh, continue along, but he was stopped. And when um, he saw what was going on, um, somebody else was also got involved. And in that situation, Adama managed to um, run away because he knew um, that he would get in trouble without his ID on him. And he found shelter in an apartment of somebody he knew. Um, what I'm about to tell you is what we were told by the police at the first hearing on that very night. We were told that uh, my brother was um, pushed by the weight of three heavy bodies and that he was pinned to the ground and that they uh, crushed his chest and then they just threw him in a, a police car and what he screamed was, I can't breathe. He wasn't brought to the hospital even though the hospital was close by they decided that they would just let him die the way one would let a, do a dog die in the, in the police station's um, courtyard in the full sun. As I mentioned, uh, they just threw him in that police station's courtyard and um, we asked to have police reports of what happened that night to Adama Traoré, and um, we didn't see right away um, reports from the EMTs, from the medics. And when we finally uh, got a chance to see them, we learned that um, through what the EMTs said, um, my brother had handcuffs to his back, and therefore um, the front of his body was pinned to the ground. So they didn't um, give him any kind of first aid the way an initial police report said that they had done. They couldn't have done that because based on the medics' report, we know that they had not placed it in the recovery position the way they should have. Um, so there was no uh, first aid given to him. Um, actually, the EMTs asked um, the police to um, remove handcuffs, and they said no. They told them, he is only a 25-year-old young man, you can't do that. Uh, my brother died at 7.05 p.m. and um, we didn't learn about it right away. 
Nobody uh, informed us of that. Um, they uh, decided that they would just let him die. You should know that in France, an ID is um, something that was introduced for the first time um, at the time of slavery. Um, a black slave, uh, if he was found on the street without his ID, he could be um, killed right there and then. So in France, um, for a long time, an ID um, document is something that is used um, to kill black people. We didn't um, learn that my brother had died that night. We didn't find out immediately. I was actually abroad. I had left the country the day before. My other brother um, called the hospitals, and then he called um, the first aid uh, center, and uh, he was told that he should call the police, which in and of itself is not normal. Ma famille va arriver devant la gendarmerie. Ma mère va sonner. So my family um, arrived at the police station and uh, my mother said, I heard that my son is not doing well. Uh, the answer was, oh, don't worry, he's fine. He's just under custody. So my mom asked, do we need to hire a lawyer? And the answer was, oh, don't worry. If a lawyer is needed, we will deal with that. Um, so my mom responded, well, if anything were to happen to um, my son, I will press charges. No, no, don't worry. He's fine. Um, so my brother um, tackled the door and asked whether um, he could see uh, a high-ranking officer. And finally, he managed to, uh, right there and then, they told him that my brother was dead. Um, they were already trying to hide um, evidence at the crime scene, just like they had hidden to us that my brother had been dead for several hours. And that's where the fight started. I had boarded a flight uh, on the 18th, and um, right before I had spoken to all my little brothers, and uh, actually I had called, uh, I got a I hadn't seen Adama, and he um, spoke to me on the phone and said, are you going to come back? Can I still see you? And I said, no, I'm already on um, the way to, to Paris. Um, can you come back? No, no, I'm already on my way. Well, he died on the 19th, and then on the 20th, I came back. And that's when it all started, when the war machine started for all of us. And why do I say war machinery? Because um, we've all become soldiers um, in spite of ourselves, in spite of what our will was. Myself and my family are now soldiers as part of this war um, in which there's really uh, no um, feelings on uh, the other side. There's no remorse. There's no um, 
emotional involvement. Uh, they have all the money in the world and they have the justice system on their side. And it is something that isn't um, stopping. Um, and actually, the criminalization of my brother started immediately after that. Comme mon frère va mourir tout de suite. When my brother died, um, the system pulled out a manual. I call it a manual. It's as if they had um, a manual teaching them what to do. And it says that it is not the police um, being responsible for what they did, but they are the victims. And my brother, on the other hand, is guilty. They say that uh, he was um, a criminal, that he was um, up to no good, that he was um, a member of the mafia. Um, and on the other side, the police were just his victims. Um, on the 19th of July, um, riots uh, broke out right away in our neighborhood. And at first, the media showed up because of that, not because of my brother's death as such, but because they wanted to film the riots that um, had broken out. And that was before I was even back yet. And when I got there, I said, there's a young man who died. His name was Dama Traoré, and he was um, killed. And we demand to have his body back. So that's when our fight started in our neighborhood, in our town. Um, young people, groups of them, um, assaulted the town hall, uh, and uh, they held a press conference this happened before I even got back, and they did a sit-in in front of the police station, and uh, they were gassed um, right there. Um, in the beginning, they said that the cause of death for my brother was um, a cardiac arrest, and that he was... Um, on drugs and that he had drunk alcohol, but that wasn't true. And we started immediately to demand to have an autopsy. So they did a first autopsy, and then at uh, the prosecutor's office, we were told, we know that you're from Mali and you're Muslim, and in your religion, the tradition is that the body needs to be buried within three days of the death, and therefore we took the liberty of contacting Air France, and there is a plane waiting um, at Charles de Gaulle to take um, your brother's body, your brother's body, back to Mali, and um, we absolutely did not want that. We wanted to have the opportunity to have a second autopsy. This is something that in France happens systematically when there is a death um, in an environment when uh, there's immigration involved. They try to get um, rid of the body quickly without performing autopsies. We said, um, look, we're not our parents. We are um, people who were born and raised in France. We're French citizens. We know what our rights is. 
and one week after, we managed to have a second autopsy where we found out that the cause of death was not some kind of um, infection. It wasn't a heart condition. It wasn't um, due to alcohol. It wasn't due to drugs. Um, so we um, managed to request uh, that there would be a follow-up and we managed to obtain a um, change of venue, which um, happened then in January 2017. Um, it was moved to Paris, and there's a panel of three judges overseeing that. This was a result of a fight that lasted three weeks, and then um, the case was moved to Paris. This is when... Um, the war started, and it's a war based on expert reports. Before I can uh, move on to explaining to you how this um, expert report war is going on, and then we can talk about the mobilization that followed that, I want to give you a little bit of um, context. Um, immediately, as I said, that war machinery started, and four of my brothers were put in jail. Um, my brother asked them, why are you doing that? And the response was, um, tell your sister to shut up. Um, and my brother then replied, you can put all of us in jail, but we will continue our fight. All of my brothers are now in prison. Um, all of Adama Traoré's brothers are incarcerated at um, in particular, uh, Bagui, who's uh, the younger one, who was actually present on uh, the day when um, Adama was arrested, because he was the one who was subject to the first ID check. Um, he was put in prison right away, because the objective is to um, weaken him, to um, stop him. Um, there have been over 70 um, policemen that pressed charges against him, uh, saying that he was the instigator for the riots that day, and he risks to be kept in prison for over 30 years. Um, this is how the French system wants to stop us, wants to um, make us shut up. Um, I actually have four different cases brought against me. Um, there's one that I still have to uh, fight out in court. My court date is set for May um, 2021. Um, and the reason for this one is that I stated Adama Taore, the police killed you, but they will not kill your name. And this is what um, made me deserve um, to end up at a trial. Here is how the French system um, wants to um, silence us. There's over 30 young people from where we come from who are now in prison. 
because you, the the movement started where we're from um, as at a very um, personal level with a lot of young people getting involved. Um, they want to attack us. They want for us to um, give up. Um, as I said, my brothers are now in prison. Aujourd'hui. Nous sommes dans une guerre d'expertise. Now we're in the middle of a war based on expert reports with France. There's over 10 of them. If we had trusted the French justice system, my brother allegedly died due to um, a heart attack or due to an infection or due to drugs and alcohol or even due to... Um, sickle cell um, syndrome, which is really not even something that runs in our family. They come up with these um, exotic conditions uh, in a very racist way. They even say that um, he died due to the heat because there was a heat wave or for other random diseases. Each time there's a new one. So we took to the street um, there were demonstrations, and um, we asked, we demanded for uh, these reports to be um, considered uh, void because they were done by charlatan um, doctors. Uh, some of them even refer to him with the wording um, subject belonging to the black race, not even by his name or a name. Um, we did have a victory um, because this expertise um, which exonerated the police um, attributing the cause of death to the excessive heat was um, considered void. And um, on the 2nd and 3rd of June, we had 120,000 people on the streets in Paris. For the first time ever, um, there was such a um, massive event, in which is very symbolic, very uh, symbolic value for France. It was in Place de la République, and it was right in front of the courthouse. And this is a date that is now uh, written in stone in the history of um, French police violence. This uh, um, expert report um, situation happened exactly uh, at a day's distance from the death of George Floyd. Il faut savoir que quand on, a, on arrive à ce 2 et 3 juin et qu'on est plus de 120 000 dans la rue, when we gathered over 120,000 people in Paris on the 2nd and 3rd of June, that was the result of work that we'd carried out for over four years. Um, the Adama Committee worked all over France in um, big towns and villages and small towns and in the um, cités in the um, uh, poor um, parts of town. And we spoke to young people all over um, these places, uh, trying to make them see how that was their fight as well. 
Um, when we talk about injustice, when we talk about discrimination, it's important for us to create a network based on solidarity. So we reached out to the LGBT community, to the community of um, cleaning ladies who were uh, on strike, to students, to um, the the green movement. So in those four years, we started um, to get organized at a local level first. We didn't uh, reach out outside of what we uh, knew. And um, we asked all those people to get involved. We did that with initiatives such as um, a huge outdoor barbecue uh, where all we could afford was um, small T-shirts that we gave out, but we invited a professional boxer um, so that it could be attractive for families to come out and join us. And by doing that, they could talk to each other and they could become um, aware of what um, the situation was. And when we did that, when we um, did that event with the uh, boxing champion, um, the French government actually sent um, the military as they would have done at the time of colonization uh, because they didn't want for us to do that. Um, they didn't want for us to get organized. And then um, the movement became um, national. And uh, on the 2nd and 3rd of June uh, at the Paris event, we had people from um, low-income neighborhoods, but also from uh, the upscale neighborhoods. We had uh, blacks and whites and all religions and atheists. We had everybody there. And even for people who uh, are white or are in a um, or come from um, the um, elegant neighborhoods, the point was, if you are not uh, directly involved, um, that's fine, better for you, but you can still um, denounce what goes on. You can still um, protest against it. And people attended, um, and we were there united as the French people. And the images of this event um, were very striking, and they reached uh, the four corners of the world. So we protested because of what had happened to George Floyd, and we uh, talked about police impunity, and we talked about the racism um, of police. And... Um, what this meant uh, in terms of what the French government was doing, um, we actually were in a situation in which we created a platform which was online and through social media we were able to um, communicate pretty quickly and we obtained uh, over 2 million visualizations. Of course, the French government declared that um, this event was illegal and we just fought against that and we continued to tell people just come come to the street and uh, protest with us 
Et suite à ça, ils vont envoyer la police chez moi, mais... That day, um, the French government sent the police to my place. I had already left to go to the event. There was somebody um, at my place, and I told them, if the police shows up, tell them that if they want to talk to me, they can come to the demonstration. And if they want to arrest me, um, if they want to say something to me, all they have to do is show up there. After that, um, there was another um, big event, another historic date for France, which was the 13th of June. That day, um, At the demonstration, there was a group of fascists, an extreme right group, who put up a huge banner on a building, and the police just let them do it, let them go ahead with that. Um, but we managed to um, take it down, and uh, there was a moment of great um, cohesion where we all got together and we all confronted them. Uh, and that was great victory for um, the entire movement, and that's when the Adama Generation movement truly started. If I am fighting now, is because I want to protect others. Uh, my brother is gone, and my brother is not coming back to life. However, if his name can manage to change um, the destiny of somebody else or can manage to turn around this war machine, it will not have uh, gone in vain. Um, I want to make sure that um, this death sentence that seems to be um, ending on the heads of my brothers uh, can be turned around. Um, our brothers, uh, our black brothers or non-white brothers, are considered as people who don't have a right to build the future of the world, the future of France, They're seen as people who cannot be involved in the creation of their own future life. Um, the French government thinks that they have um, a right of life and death over our brothers. And it is um, important that we can pull the curtains and reveal what truly goes on in France. France is not just the country of fashion and the Tour Eiffel. It is a country where a lot of people are victims of abuses. A lot of people are mistreated. Um, and this happens in the country uh, which is the cradle of human rights. What do you think, uh, I mean, obviously you're, Your story is so powerful. It answers nearly all of my questions. Um, what do you think your your brother would think if he could see this movement in his name? Um, how do you think your brother would 
view everything that's happened in the last four years? On a écrit un livre qui s'appelle Lettre à Adama. I wrote a book by the title Letter to Adama, um, where I talk uh, to him and about him. I did that um, eight months after his death um, because I saw the way in which they were talking about him. Um, they didn't even use his name. They would um, depersonalize him. And in this book, I tell him about what happens each and every day. I tell him about his death and about... Um, how we are um, building um, the network we're building. And then I talk about him, and I want for people to get to know him and to um, become close to him uh, because Adama Traoré's life does not start on that 19th of July, 2016. Um There are a lot of things that it's important for people to know about his life. Um, and they need to know about that um, as if he's, he still existed. Um, his story goes back to what happened to our father and to our parents and to our grandparents back in Mali, um, where my um, our father um, left his country and went through many other countries to come build a better life for all of us uh, in France. And we had grandparents who fought in the war between 1939 and 1945, and one of them died over here, and another one uh, came back uh, without a leg. And one of them was a uh, village leader in Mali, and that's um, Adama Traoré's life as well. Um, The name Traoré means warrior. Even the name itself as a history is important. So I feel it is my duty to talk about who my brother was, about the fact that he had interests. He was passionate about soccer, for example. He followed uh, soccer teams all over the world. Now, if my brother was here, I think he would do even twice what um, we've been doing. Um, this fight that we've been um, carrying out, we've been leading, well, I'm sure he would do exactly the same. I don't know what he would say, but what I do know is that we owe it to him. We owe it to Adama. Um, I don't know. Um, I want to say he'd be proud, even though it's not even the right word. Um, I want for him to know that his um, name is a name that now brings hope, that brings change, and that um, is connected to the idea that people can live in a freer world. Yes, hopefully the book will be translated to English and, um, and, and more people can learn your story. One last question. Um, You talk about how you built this movement around your brother's name uh, in France. Obviously, the George Floyd uh, protest here, um, 
you know, contributed to the momentum in France. Um, are you hopeful that some of these different movements for for racial justice and for for justice more broadly in different parts of the world can become connected um, in the same way that that you connected with LGBT activists and green activists uh, inside of France? You know, are you are you hopeful that that we can um, you know create a sense of global solidarity um, around these justice movements? But déjà. J'ai créé des, plus, des comités en Afrique. We have already created um, committees in Africa, in Senegal, in Mali, in Spain, in Montreal, in the Arab world. Um, the aim is to create movements of this kind all over um, with spokespeople um, who are ready to um, join the fight. Because we don't want for our fight to be uh, confined to um, just black people or to working class neighborhoods. Um, we want to create a world in which um, all of those who fight against a system who is oppressive um, can work together. Um, in the beginning, we were talking about a convergence of the fight, but I quickly realized that that wasn't the right way to frame it because um, the other um, entities um, felt that when we got in, it's as if we were sort of stealing their fight or taking over uh, in terms of what they were already doing. So I realized that the right way of talking about it is alliance and solidarity because um, when you have solidarity, alliance is immediately developed. Um, if I don't want for somebody to be killed, I immediately don't want for women to be victims of domestic violences, and I side with um, women who are striking um, in terms of better working conditions, and I side with um, the Green Movement, and I side with um, illegal immigrants. So um, this creates a network based on connections that can be promoted and become a lot stronger, where everybody does that in their own country, but they do so together. Because if everybody carries out their fight on their own, it's a lot harder. Whereas if we do so together, um, in everybody in their own country, in their own um, world, well, success is inevitable. Well, thanks. I, I think that's a great note to end on. I hope our uh our listeners, you know, find solidarity in your story and motivation uh, in your story. Um, and, uh, you know, we know that, that there's a lot more work to be done, but, but I feel more hopeful with people like you leading that, that effort. So, so thanks so much for joining us and thanks for everything you're doing. Thank you. Um, 
Now in, in France, the situation is the one I described, and uh, uh, doing something in the United States like we're doing is important for us because it um, gives more power to um, what we're doing. We're now waiting for uh, one last expert report that is supposed to come out in January, and we had to send it to Belgium because um, in France they couldn't get their act together. Um, in any case, uh, again, thank you, and um, thank you for giving even more force um, by way of your support to our message of hope. Um, no fight can uh, be advanced without solidarity, and this is a fight that belongs to all, regardless of one's um, color, religion, what food they eat, uh, what they believe in. We, what we all want is to live in a world that is um, more livable and um, with liberty for all. And this is how we have um, set it up in France, and we have no intention of letting go. Bon chance and bonsoir and, and and thank you for the translation. Yeah. Merci bien. Merci. Thanks again to Asa for joining the show. Uh, thanks to uh, Reggie Love for the memories and the laughs. Thanks to the Olympic Committee for hearing our case and uh, that's all I got. That was, uh, I mean, we covered a lot of ground, Tommy. Uh, I, and you yeah. can feel the, the balance shifting away from Trump. But, you know, got to get some shots in before it's too late. It's good. It's good. I, I'm, I'm very excited to see Biden filling up this uh, this team. I was really excited right before we came in here to see a news report that was quoting Jake Sullivan talking about uh, eagerness to get back into the, the Iran, Iran nuclear deal. deal. Yeah. 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 So lots of lots of good stuff. Lots of good changes are afoot light at the end of the COVID tunnel. So uh, stay tough, everybody. Was locked down for a little while longer. Mask up a little longer. We'll make it through this thing. But uh, see you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to Quinn Lewis for production support, and thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. <laughs>